0: All right, so what we've talked about in the book of Galatians so far, we've talked a lot about faith. And this is, we're going to talk a little bit more about law this morning. I'm sure you guys are sick of talking about law. We've done it for several weeks at this point. This is kind of the last major conversation Paul is going to have about the law. And the reason for it is because we understand the law, you know, it's been there for a time. It was there to, you know, kind of be a curse to us, whatever. But the problem with it, the problem with the law as the New Testament believer, as the Christian who put their faith in Christ, who believes that it is only by faith that we have been saved, you kind of wonder, well, why are we still talking about the law? Why does it matter? It's kind of, if it's antiquated, then why is it still there? Why is so much of the Old Testament de- devoted to it? Why are we still talking about it in the New Testament if it doesn't really have purpose? If it, what is the purpose of it? It has to have some sort of something if we're still talking about it. And so we're going kind of try to tie up some loose ends here this morning uh, in explaining the law If you remember last week, this is kind of what is going to be the the main point of what Paul is writing. You remember Ben said, uh, the law requires, but faith inspires. Uh, Which is why Ben will always be better at teaching than me, because I don't really mess around with rhymes that much. Um, The law requires, but faith inspires. And that's what the idea is, is that the the law required us to do certain things that we were unable to do. But the faith in Christ has freed us from those things and it inspires us to instead live for God. We'll explain what that means um, through this text, through what Paul is writing this morning. But before we get into that, there's, there's two tendencies, two natural mistakes that we tend to make in looking to the law. As Christians, as New Testament believers, as people, uh, as members of this new covenant, when we look at the old covenant, there are two mistakes that we tend to make, one that probably we're familiar with and one that we're less familiar with. So the first one, the one that we're more familiar with is uh, what we call legalism. You probably have heard that term before, legalism. And legalism, simply put, is, is putting too much emphasis or too much power on those laws. It's to say, you know, obedience uh, in Christ looks this way: that you must follow the law to the letter of the law. You must look at it and do exactly what it says. That is what you have to do, and that's legalism. And legalism is taking it too far. We understand that. We kind of we understand that one because we're not in any way guilty of that. Like we're so disobedient, we're like, yeah, legalism, whatever. The other one, the one that, you know, we don't know as much about uh, is probably because it hits too close to home. It's called antinomianism, right? Don't say you never learn anything. Antinomianism. Say that with me. Antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti-law anti-law. It's sort of the um, outback steakhouse theology, no rules, just right. It's to say, well, if Jesus died on our behalf and he has freed us from the law, the law doesn't matter at all. We don't need to look to it. We don't need to read it. We don't need to think about it. It doesn't matter because it has no implication on our life today. And we kind of have a problem with that one too, because you're like, well, what about, there's a lot of Bible that is law. In 613 commandments, that seems kind of like a thing that God might have meant when he said those. And so what do we do? We, we understand that the truth probably falls somewhere in the middle there. It probably falls somewhere between the law doesn't matter at all and the law is the only thing that matters. It's probably somewhere in the middle. And so what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to kind of once and for all explain What the law is to us. What the law means now that we have put our faith in Christ. Before he explained what it did before we put our faith in Christ. But now he's going to explain how do we view it now that we are believers in Christ. Now that we know that our faith is not found in the law, but it's found in Jesus Christ. The first section that we're going to look at in Galatians 3, uh, we're going to finish out this chapter... He's going to ask the, or he's going to answer the question who are we? And the answer is we are heirs. We are heirs. We're going to look at how he gets to that point. He says in verse 26, "For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." And so this is this is truly profound. It's not just that we have gained acceptance from God, but we are now within the family of God. It's not simply that God has said, you know, I care about you and I accept you and I've forgiven you and I have uh, died for you, but it's not just simply that, but we are brought into the family of God as sons and as daughters of God. It's, It's a profound acceptance. It's not just that he has accepted us, but it's that we have a closeness with God that is truly remarkable. And this is something that in popular culture we kind of Are bad at theology here, this is something that's interesting that I don't want you to miss out on, is that everyone, everyone on this earth can look to God as their creator, but not everyone can call God their father. It is only those who have been found in Christ, it is only those who are Christians that can claim God as their father. That's a a very unique opportunity that only those of you that are found in Christ can claim. It's, it's a beautiful truth that that is the closeness that we have with God. It says in verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So he talks about baptism, and and baptism is, uh, you know, obviously we're all familiar with, you know, the person gets in the hot tub and they do the thing. Uh, But the idea of baptism, baptism is a symbol of what is going on that is spiritual. It is that in the same way that Christ uh, died and was resurrected, so too our fleshly bodies, our sinful nature is killed, it is buried, and then our spirit is resurrected. We go into the water in burial and come out in a new life in the resurrection and so it's what we call a sacrament. We as a church believe in two sacraments. Uh, we as this church believe in two sacraments. And one of them is baptism. And that's, so he says this baptism, he's not saying, you know, you literally got to go, you know, put on your bathing suit and your snorkel and you got to, he's saying no, in the way that in the moment you put your faith in Christ, you were baptized, you were put to death and brought back in resurrection. And that is what has brought you in as a son or as a daughter of God was that moment of belief in Christ that I, now I have been uh, killed and now I come back in a resurrected state because of Christ's resurrection. And he says in doing that, it's like putting on Christ as a garment. It's in the way that you would put on a coat or something like that, that we now wear Christ's righteousness. We put him on, we put his righteousness on and it covers our blemishes, it covers our mistakes, it covers our failure because when you look at it, you see Christ and you don't see us. He says, because of that, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. Now, the... the Idea here, so the Jew would be the representative, uh, represented the uh, religious person, and the Greek would be the intellectual, or, or the slave, probably a better translation would be the servant, because it's not the way that we understand in American history what slavery is. Uh, it's more of like an employee-employer relationship, but it's not, it's the distinction between power, it's the distinction between male and female. And he's saying, what God is saying here is, is there is now no longer any distinction in the gospel. And what does that mean? Does that mean like when you become a Christian, you just can't, like I can't tell if you're a boy or a girl anymore because I'm a Christian, you know? No, it doesn't mean that. What he's saying when he says there is no distinction, there is no difference in this is not that there aren't physical and literal differences between us, but it's that in light of the gospel, there is no difference. It means that to God in in salvation, he doesn't see any of us as more deserving or less deserving of salvation than anyone else. We all equally can come to God and be saved in him and be found in Christ. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. We are all equally loved by the Father. Meaning that if you came from a religious household and you, you know, minded your P's and Q's and you did all that kind of stuff, you are no closer to salvation than the person who comes from those wretched backgrounds. You both have equal uh, claims on the gospel that Christ died for both of you, doesn't matter what you look like or who you are. There is no distinction in Christ that we all have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. And this is why, as, as a church, and I'm not talking about our church specifically, I'm talking about um, the church, the whole world, this is why the church says, man, that racism and sexism and nationalism and all of those things are... are contradictory to the gospel of God. These things are are terrible things. These things are part of our sinful nature that we had before we came into the faith uh, that we carry with us and we need to put those things to death because God loves all people regardless of where they come from and all people have equal access to the gospel. That's why we condemn those things because those things are contradictory to the very character of God. And of course, some of us come from, you know, I'm from the north side of this town. Uh, I went to like a primarily white high school. So there are certain prejudices, certain sins that I carried with me into the faith um, that I have to constantly be reminded, this is God. This is the character of God. There is no distinction between us. There is none of us who is any more deserving of the gospel than anyone else because we have all equally found ourselves totally undeserving of the love of Christ, and yet he has freely poured out his life for each and every one of us. That's why he says in the end of verse 28, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That we ourselves were cursed under the law, we were put to death by the cross, and we were brought to life by Jesus Christ. And so now we are all one. We are all one church body in Christ Jesus. We are now his. He has adopted us into the family. That we are a family in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That if we are found in Jesus, we are now heirs. You that word, you hear that and you're like, oh, that's kind of neat. You know, heir's the promise. That sounds f- fun. I don't know what it sounds like to you. Uh, but think about, the, think about the profound nature of the language that he's using here. An heir is someone who, upon the death of the person with the inheritance, you gain the inheritance. So if, you know... My dad had a1,000 dollars that he was like saying, "When I die, you get it. Well when he dies, I now have the legal right to that thousand dollars." And what it's saying here is Jesus, who was righteous, who was holy, who had God's favor, who kept the law, who was perfect. Upon his death, we as heirs of Jesus, receive His righteousness. We have a right to that righteousness. Because of his death. It's it's truly profound. We are heirs according to this promise. We gain and we reap the benefit of Christ through his death. And so he's going to go on to chapter 4. And and this is uh, an interesting thing. He says, well, how did we become heirs? How did we become heirs to this promise? How did we become sons and daughters of God? How does this happen? It's going to be interesting. We're going to look at, uh, at the law a little bit. He says in verse 1, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Again, probably a better translation is uh, a servant. But the idea here is, um, if you were to go into the kids' room, you wouldn't be allowed because of laws, but imagine, you know, whatever. So if you could just see it, if we had like a camera in there or something, I think that's probably illegal too, but um, just bear with me, we'll figure this example out somehow. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to somehow know what's going on in there, the different children have different inheritances down the line for them, right? One of them might come from a very wealthy family where when they've gained their inheritance, they never have to work on their day in their life. Another might come from a family that doesn't, isn't as wealthy and they'll never be given anything in their entire life and they'll have to work for everything they ever have. And they have vastly different inheritances. But as children, it doesn't really matter, right? You don't treat them any different. The rules are the same for them. Like, don't bite each other. It's the same. It doesn't matter if you have a big inheritance or a little inheritance. When you're a child, there is no distinction between you two. So he's saying, well, well, while the heir is a kid, it doesn't really matter what he or she is going to inherit because they're a kid. He says in verse 2, to kind of further explain it, he says, But for the time, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so it's the same for, you know, while you're growing up, you have no claim on this inheritance. Even though the inheritance legally will be yours, it doesn't really change anything about you until the date set by the father, until a time, a specific point in time the inheritance isn't yours, but instead you're given, or you're, it says you're guarded by these managers. There's a, there's uh, an external principle that's set in place. There are rules, essentially. And what he, Paul is doing here is he's not, he's explaining humanity as a whole. It's a really, it's, it's a profound example he's going to give. Uh, I'll explain it in a second. But it's kind of like when you were a kid, when you were little, and you would go to a, a public swimming pool, or, you know, whatever, and you're out of the pool and you're running and, you know, some lifeguard blows their whistle at you and they tell you to stop running. And you, as a six or seven or eight-year-old or whatever, you know, they, they tell you to stop running and you're like, hold up, why? Like, I need to get over there. And I need to get over there quickly. Like, I don't, like, why should I not run? Just don't whistle at me, please, you know? Um, and when you're young, you're not very smart and so you don't understand that's dangerous it's slippery you can hurt yourself don't do that though I'm not saying don't do that because adults are no fun I'm saying because we know what's best for you and you should not do that but as a kid you don't understand And what Paul is doing here is explaining humanity as a whole, humanity would not understand and did not understand the freedom that Christ was going to give. And so for a time, there was a necessary rule, there's a necessary guardian or manager that was put in place to protect us, right? And so when the Old Testament says, don't eat pigs, it's not because, oh, pigs are so much fun and God doesn't want you to have fun. It's like, no, you aren't very smart. You don't know if you don't cook those things right, they're going to kill you. It's like super practical. You're like, wow, God is really smart. And that's what's going on here. Is he's saying, y'all aren't smart enough to understand the freedom of Christ. Y'all aren't smart enough to understand that one day the Spirit will guide you. One day you will know what is right and wrong because of, uh, because of who God is. But for a time, you don't understand that. And so you needed a system or a set of rules put in place to protect you. To make sure you don't go off the deep end in that time before you understood the freedom of Christ. So he says in verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So for a certain amount of time, we were held kind of in bondage to this law so that we wouldn't throw away the promises of our inheritance. You know, if you gave a child the inheritance when they were a child, they would just buy a million pieces of bazooka bubblegum, and their inheritance would be ruined because they don't understand what their inheritance is. And so there had to be rules put in place for a certain amount of time. Now here, this is fascinating, and I'm not going to explain it too much. You all got to do this on your own time. Uh, but he doesn't use the word law here. He says the uh, elemental forces of this world. And that is weird. Uh, y'all aren't acting like it's that weird. It's weird. Nowhere in the, in the Bible will you ever see anyone talk about the law in those words. This is the only time that that ever happens. And the reason for it, uh, kind of briefly speaking, is uh, you look at any religion across uh, history. And every religion has had this belief that in some way we have failed to meet the standard of the God or the gods or whatever, and we must appease that God or gods through sacrifices. That's not really unique to Judaism or Christianity. That's true across the board. And he's saying it's not just that this, this, this law was given to us, but it's even in the elemental principles of this world that we as humans understand that this system of rules that has been put in place to protect us, we were uh, not able to keep. That it is bondage for a time and it ensnares us for a time, but there is hope. And here it is in verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. And so this is when the, t- when the fullness of time came, and what that, that's a... You could study that forever, what that means. But basically, essentially, to boil it down, it is at a certain point in time when God said, this is the right time to do this, he sent forth Jesus Christ. That happened at a moment in time. That was kind of the transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And he says this here. Don't, this is incredible. This is, oh, we call this, in the theology world, I'm going to write this down because you can use it at lunch and sound really smart. It's called the Doctrine of Propitiation. That's right, that's like, whoa, what? Uh, here's what it is. Here's simply what it is, and you, you see it in this verse. Uh, there's three parts to it that he mentions here. He says the first one is that God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Now this had to happen. This is, these three things that we're going to look at, they had to happen for us to become heirs, for us to be able to get this inheritance, for us to be able to be saved. The first one is that God had to send his son. What does that mean? That means that God had to himself come into this world so that he could take the wrath of God because God is the only being capable of fully enduring the wrath of God, to fully satisfy the wrath of God. Only God could take it. If you or I tried to take it, it would take us an eternity to pay it off. So only God was able to fully endure the wrath of God, and so God had to come into this world. That's the first part of it, is that God had to send forth his son. The second part says, born of a woman, that he had to come in the human flesh. Because for God to pay the penalty of God is all good and well, but he has to pay it for the sake of man. He has to pay it on behalf of man. That means that the flesh, the literal physical flesh, has to be killed so that our flesh can be killed. And so God had to come not only as God, but as man. That's why the person of Christ, fully God and fully man, is so profound. Because it endures the wrath of God on our behalf, on behalf of the flesh. It's this perfect principle of God's wisdom, of God's understanding of how to destroy and defeat sin, that he has to fully pour out his wrath on us through our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. And the third part is it says that he was born under the law, born under the law meaning that he was born still in a time where the law was being practiced, where the law uh, was openly, people knew it, people had it memorized, people knew what it was, and he lived according to every letter of the law. He lived perfectly and righteously under the law without breaking it so that upon his death, we could inherit that righteousness. That righteousness that he earned, we now inherit through his death. That upon his death, the wrath of God is satisfied, the penalty for man is paid, and the righteousness is inherited by those who are found in that death. That God's wisdom is brilliant and that he paid this sacrifice through his flesh and blood that perfectly paid for sin. That's why he says in verse 5, so that, uh, talking about Jesus, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. That we were held in bondage for a time under the law to protect us, but now we can understand the freedom that we have in Christ. That the law was therefore a time to protect us so that we could gain that inheritance, so that we didn 't squander it all away before that time when we were found in Christ, that Christ paid the price of man by the blood of God, and now, because of that, we are adopted we are adopted. Now, uh, my parents adopted my sister uh, from the Ukraine a few years ago and It's really a profound thing to to experience kind of on this end of it, of of accepting someone into my family, is what is wild about it is that she was, you know, from war-torn Ukraine, um, honestly didn't have a very promising life there because of how horrible things are over there, Um, and yet she was brought in not based on anything that she had done, not based on, you know, earning my parents' love. And she was brought into a new life. And that is why you know, Christians are, cared, are told and commanded to care for orphans. Because it's, it's this understanding of God's relationship to us. That we were not deserving, we were not worthy of it. Where there was no reason for God to do it other than the fact that he just loved us. And has brought us into his family. Not based on anything we've done. Just out of the goodness of God's heart. He has brought us into the family. This this idea of adoption is a profound picture of God's love for us. That in Christ pouring out his blood for us, we are now brought into the family of God, adopted and loved. And he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, it's Aramaic, it simply means dad. Dad. Like, Dad, Father, what's up? He's saying, because we are now brought into the family of God, we receive the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit that now guides us. And this is, one, it says the Spirit of his Son, which is an interesting way to talk about the Holy Spirit. But what it's saying is that the, the same Spirit that Christ had, the Holy Spirit that was working through him and in him, in his time on this earth, well, when he died, we received the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of the Son is one of the things that we inherit through faith in Christ. But on top of that, the Spirit is the thing that drives us. It's the thing that guides us. Uh, He is the way in which we understand the desires of God and how to live the desires of God out. And so it's now no longer us trying to keep a set of rules, but instead us trying to please our Father. Us saying, Father, our heart's crying. And we're going to look at that again in a second because that's... um, Truly a remarkable way of, of the way to look at the law. We'll explain in a second. But he says in verse 7 to finish out: Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That we, by the price that Jesus has paid for us, by believing in him, by having faith in him, we are brought in as sons and daughters of God. And that is Beautiful. But now we ask ourselves, what, what about the law? We understand that we, we have been brought in, but what do we do with the law now? We, we had those, those two problems of the, the legalism and the antinomianism, and, and what do we do with the law now? And I think that's why verse 6 is so indicative when it says that God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Um, we're going to kind of explain how, how do we deal with, like when you talk about the book of Leviticus, how do we deal with that? How do we as the, as the Christian, as the new covenant believer, uh, interact with that? And we talked about, you know, legalism being too much uh, emphasis on the law, antinomianism being too little emphasis on the law, and we think of those two things as being uh, opposites. We think of those two things as being um, totally antithetical of one another, and the reality is is that's not entirely the case, although they're opposite sides of the spectrum, they are rooted in the same false ideology. They're both rooted in not believing the Word of God, not believing the Word of God. They both believe, or they both kind of say that if we simply live to please the Father, then we're missing out on something. The, the anti-legalism uh, is suggesting... That it's not just enough to believe in Christ, but that in order to really satisfy God, and really, in order to really satis- or have fulfillment in your life, you must also keep these rules. Whereas antinomianism says it's not simply that you believe in God, but it's that you have to reject all of these other things. And simply living to please the Father is not fulfilling enough. You have to also reject the commandments of God, which is kind of a peculiar thing to suggest. It's saying that, that we, we fail to trust in the goodness of God, that if we simply live to please him, we will find joy. That we have to, in, in some way, change the words of God around us. Let me explain this, because it, it's hard to understand, but it's, it, it's important for us to understand. I, my parents went to Oklahoma State University at Pokes. and um, a few years ago, I got my dad this really you know gaudy tacky uh button-up you know those hawaiian button-ups but they have like all those if you have a they make them for sports teams and they have like all the different things on them maybe you've seen them maybe you haven't um so i got my dad one of those and it's oklahoma state so it's orange which is already not a great color in general sorry if it's your favorite color but it's just that's bottom tier um and so it's got like Pistol Pete on it, and T Boone Pickens Stadium, and like like oil rigs. It's weird, and it's just it was some gift I got him for Father's Day like years ago. And every now and then I'll see my dad during Oklahoma State games; he'll be wearing it, and it's crazy because it's, it's just such a silly. It's a silly thing I got him years ago, but to see my dad taking pleasure in something that I gifted him is a a joy that I can't really explain it 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 brings me so much more joy than thinking back when I was a child and like oh yeah my dad told me to make my bed and I did I'm so proud of myself I'm so fulfilled no but to see my dad just taking pleasure in what I have given him is is a profound joy that I, I can't explain And similarly, when we look at the commandments of God, we look at the law of God. Well, the law is antiquated. It doesn't necessarily apply to our lives in the way that it would then. But the heart of God is the same, that he desires for us to look to him, to to live for him, to live according to the things that he has set in our life. And in doing so, in living that way, we believe that it is fulfilling to us, that pleasing our Father will bring us joy. That God is not a master to serve, but he is a father to please. God is not a master to serve, but a father to please. And the problem with legalism is it thinks that we're trying to serve a master. The problem with antinomianism is it's saying that we need to uh, serve a master, but it's not a father who we love to please. It's not a father who we love to give things to simply to see the joy that it brings him. And so, we'll look at, okay, well, how, again, that's interesting, but how do we look at actual Old Testament stuff? How do we actually view the law? So, what we'll do is, I'll go through a few examples of laws that exist in the Old Testament, and we'll look at, well, how do we look to that today? And this is kind of a a rule, we call it hermeneutics, or biblical interpretation, uh, with the Old Testament, with the law specifically, is you take it, you try to understand culturally how they would have understood it, you say, what is the heart of God behind that? And then how do we take that heart of God and apply it to our lives today? And we'll look at three different ways, three different laws uh, that we kind of make that transition. Using the Holy Spirit as our guide to understand what is it that God desires. The first one is uh, coveting. It's the 10th commandment. We know, you know, don't want stuff that's not yours. Um, and you think, okay, in the Old Testament mentality, it was like, just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't covet. Don't look at, don't look at your, you know, your friend's wife and don't do that. But there's more to it than that, and so how do we interpret that today? And this is kind of an easier one, but um, the idea of coveting the heart of God behind it is that God does not want us to desire anything outside of who he is. That if you don't have it, you don't need it. And so there's no reason to desire anything or try to find pleasure in anything outside of who God is. That's his heart behind it. I think of um, something that is not cool or interesting about me is I love Star Wars Legos. It's a combination of two uncool things combined. Um, they just came out with this new Lego set. It's a Millennium Falcon. It's like 7,000 pieces. It's, it's like this big. It costs $800. And so not only will I never own that, but it would just be irresponsible for me to. And like, who has $800 in this economy? Yeah, right. Uh, so... And I look to that, and it's like the, my flesh says, I want that, I want that. And I have to remind myself, and this is how you apply this today, is, is when I find myself wanting things that aren't of God, that God has not put in my life, to pray and say, Lord, no, I don't want anything but you. I don't want to find any joy or pleasure in anything of this world. I want to find it only in you, because everything's going to burn one day. You take the heart of God and figure out how to apply it to your life today. Another one, in Leviticus 3, it says don't eat blood, which that law is not put there because it's gross, it's put there for a reason. Uh, that's an easy one for us to keep, right? You're like, all right, applied, done. Um, <laughs> the idea behind it is what they would do, and this is kind of in mythology the way people back then believed, was if you had a cheetah and you drank its blood, then you would become faster. Or if you had a lion and you drank its blood, that you would become stronger. You would basically uh, inherit the, the attributes of that animal. And so the reason for that law being put in place isn't because like, yuck, why would you do that? Uh, It's because God does not want us to find any source of strength outside of who he is. He doesn't want us to look to anything else for strength. He wants us to only look to him. And so you take the heart of God and how do we apply that today? It's to look at anything in our lives that we are relying on for strength, anything in our lives that we depend on and to get rid of those things and to remove those things from our life so that we look just to Christ and say, you alone are our strength. Here's a fun one. In Deuteronomy, uh, they had flat roofs and so God says, put a wall around it. You're like, all right, this one can't apply to our lives, right? Like, our roofs are not flat. It doesn't matter. Um, what's going on here is, what would happen is they would kind of, ha- they would hang out on their rooftops. They would kind of party up there. And what inevitably would happen was someone would have too much to drink, they'd start stumbling around, they'd fall off, and they would die. And what God is saying is, like, just put a wall up. Just, like, let's keep people from dying in really stupid ways, and again, you're like, all right, what's the heart of God there? Well, it's, it's really interesting because the very next commandment really shines light to this. The next commandment that he says is, is you don't ever want to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. And he goes from talking about something that's very physical uh, and kind of an understanding of, of the way it, act, or it plays out into something that's spiritual and saying you never want to do something that causes someone else pain or struggle or anything like that and it's going from you just don't want people to be falling off your roof and dying to you never want to cause a brother or a sister to fall into sin or to fall into distress because of something that you did you never want someone to you know question what they believe because you acted in a stupid way you never want it 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 shows the profound heart of God that it's not just something as simple as don't be falling off roofs but it's I don't want harm for any of you. And so don't harm one another. As we take the heart of God and we apply it, how do we look to that today? How do we keep, by our actions, keep our brothers and sisters from stumbling, keep our brothers and sisters from falling into sin? And this is how we we deal with the Bible, is we have to study it, we have to interpret it, we have to look to the, the, the cultural implications, we have to understand what is it that God is trying to tell us through this. How do we, uh, you know, you, you pray, Holy Spirit, show us, reveal to us what it is that you have to say. So it's not that we live according to every letter of the law, but it's not that we reject it because it's still the heart of God. It's how do we take this and find out what is it that God is speaking to us?